And I think this is the insight that Levitt shows us. And I'm sure that you see this with the people that you coach, that by the time they're actually willing to walk away from a job, they are miserable. It is going nowhere. It is so incredibly clear that they don't really have a choice, that their very happiness is at stake, right? That's when we're willing to quit. But the fact is that you ought to be doing that much sooner. We're really bad at expected value. That once we get in something, we're so unwilling to walk away until we can say this sentence. Well, what could I do? I didn't have any other choice. Well, look, if you don't have any other choice, then it's just too late. You should have done it a long time ago. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Annie Duke, who is an author, a speaker, and a consultant in the decision-making space. As a former professional poker player, you have won more than $4 million in tournament poker. No, that is not a typo. $4 million in tournament poker. Uh, in a previous lifetime, you were awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Your previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. And today, we're largely going to be discussing the work that you've done in your late latest book, which by the way, shameless plug at the very top, buy this book, read it, absolutely internalize it for anybody that wants to design a more fulfilling career. Quit the power of knowing when to walk away. Annie, I know you and I just met. You have no idea how long you have been in my mind and how much and how long I've wanted you on this podcast today. So I'm very, very excited that you're here. Well, thank you. It sounds like the good version of stalking. Uh, I would say so, yes. it's a, There's a delicate line between networking and outreach and finding people that you want to put into your network versus outright stalking. I've learned how to delicately balance that line. So. It was well done. It was well done. Great. Well, I appreciate that. So uh, here's the ironic thing about today's call. Um, this 
podcast is very much talking about how we can optimize human potential. And I've talked to plenty of best-selling authors and experts and athletes at a very high level and everyday people that achieve extraordinary things. And a common theme is always grit and perseverance and you power through and you work through the struggles and you are probably the biggest quitter I have ever had on my show. So I'd love to learn a little bit more before we get into the science and the book and the research and everything else why you identify as a quitter. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about your origin story and your previous life and how you ended up playing poker and now ended up here today talking about this book. So, I mean, here's the thing is that I think that we make too big a distinction between grit and quit. We think of them as like opposing forces, but they're actually the same thing. You can be a quitter and a gritter at the exact same time. And that's actually more how I describe myself. The reason why I talk a lot about the quitting that I've done is because I think that for adults, particularly high achievers, um, we lean so heavily into grit. Like, you know, we like to talk about sticking to it and I've never quit anything in my life. And really like the trials and travails of sticking to hard things. And, and I think we think about it as such um, a sign of good character, you know, and lack of character is quitting. So so I like to actually talk much more about the quitting that I've done. That, that being said, I've done well at many things, which means that I also, by definition, must be gritty because in order to do well at something, you have to have stuck to it. So it kind of all started back in graduate school. I did five years worth of graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. And right at the end, I had all of my doctoral work done. I was going out for my job talks. I got really sick with a stomach illness and ended up in the hospital for two weeks and found myself in a situation where I needed to take a leave of absence. Um, and so I did that. I was going to go back out on the job market the next year. This happened in the spring. Um, and so I was going to go back out the next winter. But it was during that time that I was like, oh, no, I don't have a fellowship anymore. I need money. And I started playing poker in these little smoky basement bars in Montana, which is where I was sort of recuperating at the time. And I had a knack for it. So I quit graduate school and I started playing poker. And, you know, I look, I, I stuck with graduate school for five years. I don't think that it was a bad quit. Once I sort of discovered poker and my love for poker, I sort of decided I wasn't going to go become a professor. So I'm going to stick to this for a while. And I did. I stuck to it for 18 years, um, won some world championships, um, did pretty well. But in 2002, so this is about eight years into my poker career, I... um was asked to give a talk on the way that, like the way that what we understand about poker might inform how somebody in uh, the financial services business or in options trading might think about risk. And I actually started thinking about my work in cognitive science and the way that um, we can think about uh, cognitive bias and risk aversion and risk attitudes, um, how they converge with uh, what you can learn about those from poker. And I sort of realized there was kind of an interesting conversation to have between the two. So I ended up um, cutting back on how much poker I was playing and started giving these talks to uh, different groups in business, um, thinking about the, the convergence, sort of the intersection between poker and cognitive science. And then in 2012, I quit poker completely. Um, Started a nonprofit, moved back to the East Coast. So I guess I quit LA, you could say. I don't blame you, um, side note. Keep yeah. <laughs> and then um, 
You know, I really, I, I had written some books about, about poker specifically, about poker strategy, but really wanted to write this book, which ended up being Thinking in Bets, which was uh, sort of putting down what I've been talking about for 10 years to these uh, really, group, you know, groups of really smart people at the intersection of cognitive science and poker, put that down on paper, and that became Thinking in Bets. Um, and I really loved it. And I loved the writing process. I, you know, did a lot of writing in graduate school. I was actually uh, in one of my majors in college was an English major. And I just really enjoyed the writing process and wanted to do more of it. So since then, I've written two other books. Quit is the most recent one. Um, and now I consult in that space. I'm actually back at the University of Pennsylvania. I teach executive ed at Wharton. And Here's the funny thing. And this is the important thing about quitting is that you have to realize sometimes you can go back. I'm just about to finish my PhD. So you're not a quitter. You're a pauser. Um, well, all quitting is sort of pausing. And, you know, you don't really know until you're dead <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if you are pausing or quitting. There's actually very few things that you quit where you can never, ever, ever go back. Even, you know, people get divorced. They get remarried to the same person. Um, the, the few things where it's, you know, there are some things where it's really hard to go back. Interestingly enough, not the academic world that I was in, but if you are an academic in the humanities, actually kind of interesting, and you exit that, uh, it's actually hard to go back. So that would be an example of something that where you're pretty much closing the door, but you're really closing, the, you know, you're mostly leaving it ajar. Um, and I think that's something that we should remember about quitting is that sometimes it is pausing. I happen to pause my thing for like 30 years, but, but you know, not everybody pauses for 30 years and goes back. Yeah. And this is something that you've talked about before that's called the two-way door problem, correct? Um, from that uh, Jeff Bezos popularized. Yeah, exactly. So here, here's the main problem. And I think uh, this is what Jeff Bezos is thinking about. Um, is so when we choose to start things, when we make a decision to start something, whether it's like a career in writing or we're going to move to LA to become an actor, or I'm going to start a job as an engineer at a tech startup, or I'm going to start dating somebody or going to marry somebody. Um, I'm going to start running a marathon, what, whatever it is that you're starting, you're starting under conditions of uncertainty. And all that means is that you don't know everything like you you were making decisions when we just don't have all the facts. And I think we've all had that feeling of discovering something after the fact, after we've started it and kind of wishing we had known that at the time that we made the decision. And that's just that feeling. I mean, think about it. Like when you take a job, how much do you know about the job? You've never done it. Right. I don't really know about the company or the people I'm going to work with or whether it's going to be fulfilling or I'm going to like it or they're going to like me. We just don't know very much about that stuff when we choose to start, but we have to choose to start under those conditions because we don't have omniscience. So that's one form of uncertainty that really kind of bogs us down. But then the other form of uncertainty is just pure luck. So even if I had perfect information, right, even if I knew for sure what the chances of different possible worlds are that that might occur if I do something, it's still the case that I don't have control over what world I see. And you can kind of think about that in the sense of, you know, I can know all the traffic laws, right? So there's no information that's hidden from me there. I can know that the light is green. And I can go through, I can still get in an accident just because I get unlucky. Because it's just in the possible set of, set of things that could happen. So it's kind of like in poker, right? It's like we can both put all of our chips into the pot and we can turn our hands over and you could have a seven and a 
two and I could have aces. And then the cards go and I don't have any control over that. So that that really makes these decisions to like, what am I going to start? What am I going to decide to do? What am I going to decide to commit to? Actually quite difficult. But what Jeff Bezos points out with the idea of a two-way door decision is that the option to be able to quit makes that decision to start things much easier. Because what that means is that when you do have that feeling of, I wish I'd known then what I know now, the option to quit lets you do something about it. So if I find out that I hate my job, right? And it's just not for me, I can quit. So when I started, there was just a bunch of stuff I didn't know. I started doing it, but didn't like it. I can walk away. That's what he means about a two-way door decision because the door doesn't just shut behind you, right? Like you can walk back through it and go maybe pick options that you rejected in the past, or you could go find new options um, that you could choose fresh. And that takes a lot of the pressure off of, you know, how do you actually decide to start something? I mean, when you think about it, you really don't know anything, right? So that helps it. The problem though, is that we don't open those doors back up very well. So it just turns out that we're really, really crappy at quitting. So in theory, it should help us that we have this option to quit. But in practice, we just don't do it very much. Uh, well, the first problem that you've created for me is in that one little blurb. I have about three and a half hours worth of questions and dissecting okay, that I, right. I'm, already I'm already completely engrossed and obsessed with this conversation. And there's a bunch of things that I want to pick out. The first one that I actually want to pick out is that I'm sure that alarm bells are already ringing for my audience because I talk incessantly about the concept of luck. And I have called in many contexts luck a four-letter word. And mm -hmm. my audience interprets that as, well, Zach says that luck doesn't exist. Not even remotely true. However, I think so many people ascribe so much of their life's direction on luck as opposed to let's focus on all that which we can control. If I know the traffic laws and I see the light is green and I get hit by a car, well, I couldn't have controlled that. If I, however, decided ah, I don't need to know the rules and ah, looking up at the lights for suckers, well, that's not luck. You put yourself in no. a situation where that likelihood was higher. But yes, luck does exist. So I just I want to talk a little bit more about how, yes, luck exists, but you can reduce the amount of luck in your life by being very strategic about your decisions. And the context that I want to frame this in is the difference between an amateur poker player and a professional poker player and how that factors into quitting. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that I just want to pick up on. So the first thing is, it's interesting that, so there's, there's a bias. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called self-serving bias. Mm -hmm. Um. And what it is, is that when we get outcomes, either good or bad, we actually apply luck asymmetrically. So when we have bad things happen to us, then we say, I got unlucky. So uh, it's like, oh, the world happened to me. And when we have good things happen to us, we say, I'm so great. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see this at poker all the time, right? So I'm going a slightly different direction, but... So when uh, players win a hand, they say, I played so great. I outplayed my opponent. And when they lose a hand, they say, I got so unlucky. That was so mm -hmm. unfair. It was all in the cards, um, right? It was just it the was cards the I cards. was dealt. It was all the cards. And that's a really bad way to think about the world. Um, your point is exactly right. That what our job as decision makers is, is to see, see the luck clearly. In other words, really try to see clearly 
what was the influence of luck on my decision? Or if we're looking forward, if I make this decision, what are the different outcomes that could occur and what's the probability of those? In the same sense that um, it's good for me to know if you're flipping a coin that it will be heads 50% of the time and tails 50% of the time. That allows me to make good decisions about like, would I be willing to bet you if I had to give you $2 for every $1 that I won? Uh, that would be a bad bet. Um, but that's because I can see the luck clearly because I can see that the coin is 50-50, right? So that's kind of that. And then what I want to understand is what was the influence of luck on my outcome? So if I do say, sure, I'll give you $2 when you win and $1 if I lose, while there's luck in the equation because of the flip of the coin, if I lose, that's my fault because I actually did not make a skillful bet. So that's what we're always trying to do is, and it's very hard to untangle, particularly in the short run. When you get a particular outcome, was it because I got unlucky or was it because I made bad decisions? And likewise, and I think this is really hard for people who are successful to say, what was the contribution of my own skill, but also what was the contribution of luck? So we have to look at those two things symmetrically, right? So we can think about it this way. Like, look, I've obviously um, had a pretty good trajectory in my life, but there's luck at the base of my life, which is I was born at a certain time when women were allowed to do things that prior to my lifetime, they weren't allowed to do. I was born to educated parents who really valued me getting educated, right? And things like that, that I absolutely had no control over. And that's not to discount the fact that I worked quite hard. But there's an intersection both on the good side and the bad side. And we need to see that pretty clearly. Otherwise, we're not going to get particularly good at decision making. So um, so that I was just thinking about that in terms of in terms of the luck element before we get to the good and bad poker players. Yeah, which we can of course. Around yeah. To now if you like. yeah, well, we're definitely going to get there. And as far as the way that you frame luck, you and I have a lot in common, because what I always tell people when I explain the difference between what I see as lucky or isn't, my first example is I'm very that I was born white, male, middle class in America in the late 20th century. Holy right. shit like, that I win the, the human lottery, right? right. I is can't that control it. That was amazing. And right. it doesn't it doesn't discount the hard work that I I've done, but right. I always ascribed everything about who I was and my identity and what I've achieved to hard work. And the the more that I grew up and learned more about the world, I'm like, there's a fair amount, if not a large amount, of luck that factors in. But I'm not going to focus on that because that's not a good use of my energy. What I what is a good right. use of my energy is still focusing on what I can control. And that's when it right. comes to this this self serving bias, um, when I learned about this, uh, it was framed uh, slightly differently, and it just completely clicked with me immediately. Which is they had to learn more about this specifically in the context of sports teams, and people would say we won versus they, they lost, lost, right? Exactly. Not we lost, and. They lost. Exactly. And where this really clicked in is with somebody else's work, which is saying the same thing in slightly different terms, which is Carol Dweck and mindset. Fixed mindset versus growth mindset. The fixed mindset is the world is happening to me. I can't do anything about it. It's all bad luck versus some of that's existing. But how much of this can I control knowing that I'm changeable, I'm malleable, neuroplasticity has proven I can learn things, I can develop new skills. To me, we're, all, we're having the same conversation with different words from different perspectives, but I want to frame this conversation around focusing on that which we can control because we can quit whether or not we choose to stick with something or we choose to quit. Yeah, and I, I think like the best poker players in the world become very sanguine about luck, right? You're sort of like, it exists, but I embrace it. 
Right. I mean, I, I can't really do anything about it. My job is to know the odds and then to make the best decision to reduce the probability that I have a bad outcome. So I don't really like the phrase, you make your own luck, because that that implies you have some control over luck. Um, what I like to say is you make your own decisions that can change the distribution of possible outcomes in your favor. So, But that's not nearly as good for an Instagram quote card. It isn't, but the problem is I really do have people think that they have some sort of control over luck, which is not mm-hmm. true. So that's what poker players are really trying to do, right? I don't control the, the deal of the cards, but I control which cards I play. I control how I play them. And what I can do is uh, work to increase my win probability. And that's the thing that I should be laser, laser focused on. And what's interesting is that what you hear from poker players who are talking about uh, you know, sessions that they've just had is that they're mostly talking about bad beats. And the definition of a bad beat is I had the best hand, something bad happened to me that I didn't have any control over. What's the point in that? There's literally nothing to be learned from that. Oh, the dealer turned a bad card. Okay, so is that going to make you play a hand differently next time? Because uh, if it's not, there's really not a lot of use in talking about it. So, you know, what you try to do is just say, look, I'm just going to embrace the uncertainty because that's the world in which I live. It's a highly uncertain environment. And I'm going to try to make sure that I'm making decisions that are turning those the spread of possible outcomes in my favor. And interestingly enough, like some of that was really part of the thing that got me really interested in quitting. Because one of the best things you can do in poker to make the odds turn in your favor is to fold. And folding is just quitting. And when you look at amateur poker players, they're playing over 50% of the two card starting combinations in Texas Hold'em that they get dealt. Whereas professional players are playing generally about 15 to 25% of those. So, you know, amateur players are entering those pots twice as often. And that doesn't even count. Like once you've gotten involved in a hand, like how willing are you to fold? Once you actually have started playing in a game, how willing are you to quit and walk away when things aren't going well? And if you're going to turn your the odds in your favor, knowing that having the skill to be able to say, you know what, return on investment is not here for me on this hand. I'm just going to let it go is one of the biggest things that you can do to make the essentially to make it go your way, right? To increase your win probability to make it so you're going to earn more money. And it happens to be something that most people are terrible at and really great poker players are really good at that. And the reason that uh, I'm so excited about the fact that you brought this up just now, it's the perfect segue to where I wanted to go next, which is one additional thing you can very much control to change the proportion of luck in the equation is how long you play. And I know that one of the things yeah. you're right about is that in poker, you talk about, you know, playing a hand, not just a hand or even a game or a day. Like it's over the course of a long period of time, which is similar to what I talk about with my students is that when you're designing your career, everybody's playing a game of chess start playing a game of chess. Don't worry about this one individual move or I said no to this job or I'm quitting this project. You've got to look at it as a much longer game. And as soon as I read this idea of the the idea of playing a large amount of hands to reduce your luck, I'm like, you and I are totally on the same page. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a saying in poker, which is poker is one long game. And what you're trying to do is keep your eye on 
what you're trying to accomplish in the long term, which is I'd like to win money in poker. Um, in other things, it might be I'd like to be the healthiest I can be, or I'd like to generate the most happiness for myself or the most fulfillment. Um, but those are all long games. The the issue that we have as decision makers is that we're real short termers. So um we can th- think about something like self-serving bias, right? It's a it's a good, it's a good way to think about the short-term problem. We can put self-serving bias kind of under this rubric of I'm good, I'm a good decision maker, right? Like this is the way we want to think about ourselves. I want to have a positive narrative of my life story. I don't want to feel like I made mistakes. I want to feel like I am a valid human. So what happens is that because we have this desire for what we could call internal and external validity, right? Like I want to view myself well, I want other people to view me well. Um, We get caught up in the short term when we have something bad happen to us right? We get fired from a job or we get in a car accident or have a bad day at work or our sports team loses, whatever it might be. We get caught up in the short term and now we have a conflict because in the short term, we want to feel good about ourselves, right? And the easiest path to feel good about myself in the short run is to say it wasn't my fault. So that's a short, that's a short run way to sort of get out of the problem, right? But It's clearly in our long-term best interest if we did have some part in what happened to take responsibility for that and then change our behavior going forward. That's going to get us to where we want to go in the long run. But it doesn't matter because we're all what we would call temporal discounters. And temporal discounters, the way that you can think about it is, um, you know how people will win the lottery and they'll take the money now, but they're getting like half as much money as they would if they just allowed it to pay out over their lifetime? So what that means is that in order to get the benefit today, they're taking a huge discount, right? I think it's 50%. Uh, it's a, it might be 60%. It's a big discount. So they're discounting. You can take think about it this way. They're, they're, discount, they're taking a discount in the present so that they don't have to wait and, and get the reward in, in the future. So um, that's kind of how we can think about temporal discounting, right? Is we're discounting, we're taking a discount in the present. And that's what's happening when we say it's not our fault. It's like a knee-jerk reaction is we're thinking in the short term. So in poker, this can happen as well. We can think about this in terms of quitting, which is that once you're involved in a hand, I've now invested money into the hand, okay? So every chip I put into the pot, right? This is all money that's come out of my stack and gone into the pot. Now, if I keep playing the hand, there's a chance I could get that money back. Because I I can get lucky, right? Like even if the odds are against me, as long as I'm in the hand, something could happen, maybe I win. It's only when I fold that I'm sure that I'm not going to get those chips back. Okay, now, if it's the case that the hand isn't worth playing, it's best long run for me to fold because then I'm not putting more chips in, in investing more chips in a hand that's no good. I can take those chips that I'm saving and invest them in a hand in the future that's going to be much better return on investment. That's all going to be good for me in the long run. But in order to do that, I have to feel like I'm a bad player, like I'm taking the loss in the moment and people don't want to do that. And it's not just poker where people don't want to do that. People say all the time, like, if I quit my job now, I've wasted everything I put into it. That feeling of like, I've wasted it. But if it's a crappy job that you hate and you stay in it, the only waste that's happening is going forward. Because I hate to tell you, but the time and money and effort and attention that you put into it already, 
that's already gone. You already spent it. What matters is, are you going to continue and spend more at a waste, which is a long run bad decision that might give you some satisfaction in the short run where you don't feel like I made a mistake to make the take the job or I've wasted all of my time or what's wrong with me that I couldn't make it work. Whatever those things are, that, that, that self-talk that we have um, that prevents us from actually walking away causes this horrible long run problem because we're all temporal discounters. Yeah, and this is something I talk about with my students all the time that's called the sunk cost fallacy. Well, I've, yeah. I've already put all this time into this career path and yeah. I've learned all these skills and I hear this all the time. If I decide to quit and go a different direction, I have to start over. And what I want to bring that back to is actually the very beginning of your story where you have five years in master's program. You're, from what I understand, you were ready to defend your dissertation. It wasn't I took a few classes. No, it was, no, you're no. like, I can literally reach out and I can touch the finish line. It was right there. I was done. And, right. And so many people will think, but you're so close. Why would you want to, quote unquote, start over? And what I want to talk more about, and I think that you have the same obsession with this book that I do. You haven't named it by name, but you've talked about the concepts. And that's Range by David Epstein. I love David Epstein. By the way, he has a wonderful substack that everybody mm-hmm. should. Yeah, I read um, it. I, I, I love it range too. Wild, wildly. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Was very helpful with Quit. Um, love him. The, the reason I bring it up is if we go back to that situation where you go from, I'm ready to defend my, to defend my dissertation to now I'm going to be a poker player. Most, if not everybody, maybe with the exception of your family, because you come from a long history of people that have played poker. But outside of that, people would say, well, that's dumb. You're starting over. But when you understand how do I take so many transferable skills and past experience where it can not only be valuable in a new context, but my unique intersection of being somebody that knows poker and that knows human psychology, I don't think it's an accident or you got lucky that you got really good at the psychology of poker, right? So none of that was wasted, but why would people think you're starting over and you're a quitter? That That's the problem that so many of my students fall into is I have to start over. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it in that frame. So I love that frame of starting over. The way that I thought about it was actually kind of the mirror image of that, which is people think that quitting stops your progress. And it's not true. So we can think about it this way. Like if I can give you an analogy. So let's say that you're going somewhere, say on the 405. Or not going somewhere if we're talking about the 405. That's what I mean. But go on. So you're heading and and Waze tells you that, you know, the, the traffic's pretty clear on the 405. Um, and you get onto the 405 and it's a parking lot. All right. So the question is, should you exit the road? Now you could think about this as your life's choices, right? Like if you're in something that's basically dead-ended, that isn't worth it to stick with, it's obviously going to get you to where you want to go faster if you exit the road, right? So the first time, the first exit that comes up on the 405, you should take it because this is not happening. There's a semi that's turned over in front of you and it's going to take hours to clear, right? So in this case, we can see like when I talk about the traffic example, people can see pretty clearly that in this particular case, quitting, which is getting off the road is going to get you to where you want to go faster. All right. So we can take that and think about that for life decisions. If I'm in a job that is not going anywhere, that is not making me happy, that is not making me feel fulfilled, 
where it doesn't have any opportunity for advancement or whatever it is that's going to make you happy in your work, staying in it is what's stopping your progress. Because it's you've you figured out you're not going to get to where you want to go staying in this position. So you want to exit the road because you want to get to some on onto something that has a, a higher what we call expected value, a higher chance of helping you to achieve your goals. So we can think about expected value in a simple way of we have goals. If you are, have a positive expected value, what you're doing is advancing you toward your goals. A negative expected value is advancing you away from your goals. And then sometimes you can think about like uh, you're doing something that's pretty good, but there's other things that could be better. So that's sort of a nuance to that. But let's take it simple as, is it positive expected value or negative expected value? Obviously, if you're stuck on the 405 and you can exit to a road that's clear, the road that's clear has the higher expected value. You'd want to go do that. And it's also true in career choices too. If I'm in a career that isn't doing it for me, where I have like toxic coworkers or I just don't like the job, it's not great, um, then I ought to exit and go switch to something that is actually going to cause me uh, to have a higher chance of achieving fulfillment. Now, how you decide when you exit, that's a different story because that has to do with like, how long can I afford to be without a job? But once you sort of figure that out, like how long can I afford to be without a job? Um, that sort of tells you how much do you have to overlap and maybe start doing some exploration while you're still in your current position so that you don't get yourself in trouble on the switch. But that's what we would call like transaction costs in the same sense that if I own a stock and I want to sell it to buy another stock, there's there's some transaction costs. Um, so we'll take that into account a little bit. But what we really care about is I want to sell this stock because it's a loser so I can go buy this stock that's a winner. I want to quit this job because it's a loser for me. It doesn't matter what I've already spent. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter the training. It doesn't matter all that stuff. It's not starting over. It's spe- it's I want to I want to get to where I want to go faster. So I need to stop this thing because I am in traffic on the 405. My sincerest apologies for the interruption. But if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, 
it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So I'm glad you brought up this idea of expected value. This is exactly the whole reason that we are here. But I want to go back to this 405 analogy, and I want to throw one wrench in the works that changes the whole circumstance. The assumption that we're making in your version is I have ways. I know there's a semi backed up, and it's going to take hours. Now it's the same scenario. I'm on the 405. Traffic is stopped. I see an exit half a mile ahead, but I have no internet service. And the thought in my mind is I could get off at the exit, but what if traffic clears up in three minutes? I'm still going to get ahead way faster if I just stick it out. And I know that more often than not, what I've learned about myself when I get stuck in traffic is the old version of me is like, oh, I got to get off. I got to get around this. And then all of a sudden I realize if I just waited like five minutes, I would have gotten to my destination, number one, faster. And number two, with way less stress. So if I have no internet connection, no ways and no certainty that there's a semi stopping my progress, does that change your scenario? Uh, so yes, no, it doesn't. So let me, let me explain why. So you're describing exactly the problem that I said about starting things. So when you choose to get on the 405, you're making that decision under conditions of uncertainty. Given what I know now, um, it seems like this is the best route for me to go to get from you know, the valley to Santa Monica. Okay. So, um, so that's kind of where you are, right? But there's all sorts of things that could throw a wrench in it, right? And you're trying to guess by like time of day, is this a time when there's a lot of traffic? Um, You don't have any internet. So that's sort of what you're going on. Um, And then you get on the road and you learn new things. And as you're learning those new things, there are signals that things are going well or things might be going poorly. And what it's doing is it's changing your estimate of expected value which is just, do I think this is likely to advance me toward my goals? Or do I think this is going to slow me down in comparison to other choices that I might make? And what's interesting is that we'll make that initial decision to start under those conditions of uncertainty, because that's exactly what you're talking about. You don't end up internet. You don't really know whether there's traffic on the 405. You don't know if it's going to be going fast or going slow. You're making your best guess at it. We're okay with that once we start. But what happens is once we started, once we've gotten on the road, but I've already been on this road for so long. I've put so much time into it. If I exit, then I'll have wasted all of this time. What if, what if it ends up being okay? What if the traffic clears up in a second? Those types of counterfactuals are really, really hard for us. Um, and they get us to keep, to, that our default is to keep going so that we keep going too long. So let's think about these two problems separately. One is how do you deal with this expected value problem? But how do we know that people tend to stick too long? Um, so that is work that comes from separate and apart from, we know that things like sunk cost fallacy, the endowment effects, status quo bias, like which we can talk about, we've talked about sunk cost, gets us to stick to things longer than we ought to already. But Stephen Levitt, who wrote Freakonomics and you know has the podcast with Stephen Dubner, actually did a really fun thing, which is he, he put up a website 
where people could put in like big life decisions where they were thinking about sticking or quitting. So let's say that you have a job and you're like, I don't know what to do, Zach. Maybe I should stay in it or maybe I should quit. This seems like a really close call. And uh, they could go to this website and they could say, I'm trying to decide whether to stay in my job or quit. And then um, they would ask for your to, for you to rate your happiness on a scale of like zero to 100. And then they would flip a virtual coin. And if, you know, landed heads, you would stay in your job. If it landed tails, you would quit your job. So let me just sort of like get the sort of stipulations in here. So if someone is willing to flip a coin to decide whether to stick with their job or not, can we agree that they think it's a really close call? Obviously. And we can also talk about how by the time you're asking that question, it's probably too late. But I'll I'll let you get to that in a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So the reason why we know it has to be a close call is because a coin by definition is 50-50. So if you're willing to flip a coin to make the choice, you must think it's 50-50. So now let's translate that into saying that what that means is that you think it's equally likely that you'll be happier staying in your position as you will be quitting your position. That's sort of what the definition here of a close call would be. So remember, he measures their happiness on a scale of zero to 100. And then he calls them back in two to six months. So two months, six months, says, tell me your happiness on a scale of zero to 100. Now, if it's really a close call, what you should find out is that the stickers are as happy as the quitters two and six months later. But that's not what he finds. He finds that the quitters are happier. Okay, so what is going on there, right? Well, what it means is that when we experience a close call, it's not. Because the amount of evidence that you need to get on the 405 is much less than the amount of evidence that you need to exit the 405. That is what we find out, right? Is that you're willing to just get on the 405. You're willing to just take the job. You're willing to just go go on the date or like start getting into a relationship or start up a mountain. But what happens is that once you're in it, once you're already halfway up the mountain, once you're already in the job, once you're already on the road, it's very hard to get us to quit. And we need a lot of evidence to make us do it. In fact, so much evidence that by the time most of us get to quitting, it's actually not really a choice anymore. And I think this is the insight that Levitt shows us. And I'm sure that you see this with the people that you coach, that by the time they're actually willing to walk away from a job, they are miserable. It is going nowhere. It is so incredibly clear that they don't really have a choice, that their very happiness is at stake, right? That's when we're willing to quit. But the fact is that you ought to be doing that much sooner. You can think about it like if I'm going up Mount Everest, I would like to turn around before I've already fallen into to the crevasse. Because when I've fallen into the crevasse, like obviously I have to turn around and don't have a choice, like, right? But we want to do it before the blizzard is upon us. So we've already fallen in. We'd like to do it when we just see the signs that that's going to happen. But we don't. That's why there's so many people who are laying frozen on the top of Mount Everest, right? And this is what happens to us in our jobs. And the reason is that we're really bad at expected value. That once we get in something, we're so unwilling to walk away until we can say this sentence. Well, what could I do? I didn't have any other choice. Well, look, if you don't have any other choice, then it's just too late. You should have done it a long time ago. 
one of the reasons that we are so bad at assessing expected value, and I want to workshop this even further, but one of the, the biases that I want people to better understand if they're not aware of it already is the concept of loss aversion. So talk to me about how loss aversion is so dramatically and subjectively skewing our perception of whether we should choose option A or option B. What is loss aversion? So we have a pair of biases that go together. One is called loss aversion. That's an error. And the other is shore loss aversion. So we have to think about them both in parallel to understand why people don't want to make these switches. Okay, so loss aversion is uh, the much more well-known of the two. Uh, uh, it's part of prospect theory developed by Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel laureate in economics, and uh, Amos Tversky. Basically, what it says is that um, we experience the downside much more intensely than we experience the equivalent upside. So we can think about it in two ways. One is retrospectively. If I was playing blackjack and I lost $50, it would feel about as bad to me as winning $100 would feel good to me. Um, so that's sort of retrospectively. But also prospectively, what happens is that when we're considering starting something, buying a stock, starting a job, whatever, we focus on the possible downside and we tend to neglect or not focus as much on the possible upside of the decision. So uh, what that does is it causes us to become risk averse. We don't like to choose things that have some sort of loss associated with them because we're afraid that we might actually experience those losses, even if the upside is really great. Okay, um, so that's loss aversion. Um, you can think about it like uh, people would rather buy a stock that doesn't have a lot of gains associated with it, but doesn't really have losses associated with it over one that might be a little bit more volatile. Right, so that's loss aversion. Sure, loss aversion is a companion to it, um, which is that once we have incurred losses, we do not like to quit because that is the moment that those losses on paper turn into realized losses. Right, so um, you can think about that as um, I'm trying to decide whether to buy a stock. Loss aversion is going to make it hard for me to start. Right, so loss aversion is a problem with starting things. But now I've bought the stock. I bought it at 50. It's now trading at 40. Sure, loss aversion will make me not want to sell it because uh, if I sell it, I can't get my $10 back. Now that goes back to what you said about it's all one long game, right? Like we're trying to make money across all the stocks that we own, uh, but we don't want to sell that one stock because we don't want to take this sure loss, right? So now let's think about your problem, right? Which is why does this all stop us from starting things? All right, it turns out, that loss aversion is asymmetrically applied to uh, the status quo versus a new option. So let's say we're on the 405, okay? I will be much more tolerant of the losses that I might incur from staying on the road than I will from exiting the road and finding out there's traffic there too. So what happens then is that we get focused on the losses that we might incur from the new option, but we don't really take into account the losses that we're already occurring that might be um, losses that will accrue from the option that we're already in. And then sure loss aversion makes it so we don't want to quit anyway because we'll feel like we wasted everything that we put into it. So I think one of the most illuminating conversations that shows this kind of companion problem was a conversation I had with this woman who she's a doctor, Dr. Sarah Olson Martinez, who uh, was an ER doc, um, but also a hospital administrator. 
And she had been doing that for 15 years. And over the last three years or so had become pretty miserable in her work. Um, She had, you know, at some point during her career, she had had young kids and because she had become a hospital administrator, it turned out to be kind of a 24 seven job. And she felt like it was really interfering with her work-life balance in a way that was making her incredibly unhappy. And she had been a bit unhappy for years, as I said. So she got offered a new position as a, a claims evaluator for a case evaluator for an insurance company. And she came to me and she said, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should quit or not. And so, you know, I asked her about her current position and you can imagine as she was telling me how horrible it was and how miserable she was, I was getting quite confused. I was like, well, why are we having this conversation? She's clearly really upset. Like she hates her job. And I asked her, well, why aren't you quitting? And she said two things to me. I'll have, well, I've put so much time and energy in, you know, medical school and like internship and residency and trained for my job as a doctor. If I quit, you know, I'll be wasting all of that. And then she said a second thing, which was quite interesting, which was, and also what if I quit and I take the new job and I hate that one too? Ah, so I said, oh, okay. Well, the first problem is a sunk cost issue, right? Which is, well, look, you already put that stuff in. Like it, you got, got to be thinking forward. But the second one is this sort of loss aversion problem, which is, oh, she's really worried about the downside that might occur from the switch. In a way, she's not worried about it for the things she's already doing. So the way I got her to sort of see through that problem was I said, okay, so imagine it's a year from now and you've stayed in your current position. What's the probability you're happy? And she immediately said 0%. And the reason she said 0% is because um, she could see the, the semi in front of her. It was overturned. There wasn't any uncertainty about it. It had been three years that she was unhappy in this job. So she said 0%. I said, okay, imagine you take this job with this insurance company and this year from now, what are the chances that you're happy in that job? So I'm not sure because I haven't done it yet, but I think it's 50-50. I said, oh, well, it's 50% greater than zero. And she laughed. And it was like, all of a sudden she could see it because I just focused her on the upside, right? So she was so worried about what if I take this new job and I don't like it. And instead I just turned it and I said, will you be happy in the job you're in? Will you be happy in the new job? That would be the upside. And once she saw it, she quit the next, she literally quit the next day. And uh, last time I checked, she was very happy. So, you know, and I think that you hear this all the time from people like in relationships. What if I don't find somebody new? but you hate the person you're with, right? What if, what if I take the new job and I hate it? What if I get off the road and there's traffic there too? Um, and it just stops people from making these switches because they're just so loss averse, but not for the thing they're doing, for the thing they might switch to. All of these are essentially a simplified version of this concept that I think so many people are familiar with, which is, well, the glass could either be half full or half empty versus, well, I know the glass is empty and it will always be empty. Never, It's never going to have anything in it again. But all you're focused on is, well, that other glass is half empty. And you're like, but it's also half full. Right. It's It's so obvious once you start talking about these things, but when you're in it, when you're part of your own decision-making process, there's just no objectivity and you're so lost in your emotions. And I think another thing you get lost in that we haven't talked about too much is this stigma of I am enforcing the identity that I'm a quitter. 
right? And that's something that you're obviously so adamant about is that we need to get away from that stigma. And in a similar fashion, I don't know if they're parallel, but I think they're in similar conversations. What I've talked about as far as how to become successful, what I always talk about with my peers when I speak or on the podcast or I'm on panels, I say the only real difference between me on the stage and everybody in the audience is I have failed so much more than all of you. I have turned failure into a skill and I want to make sure I'm failing as fast as humanly possible. That's where my progress comes from. And I think even though, like I said, they're not analogous and parallel, failure and quitting are kind of sort of in the same conversation, are they not? Um, they are. I actually don't even like to really use the word failure. Um, and the reason is exactly what you said. Like, look, in order to have a successful life, and we can go back to range, you have to sample a lot of stuff. and. Uh, some of that stuff you're going to stick to and some of it you're not. And when you look at the balance of those things, you're mostly going to not stick to things. So you're mostly going to try stuff and you're not going to like it or you're not going to be good at it or things aren't going to go well. Um, and the goal is to sample a lot of stuff, figure out the stuff that isn't wor working, quit all of that and then stick to the rest. And sometimes you start something and it is working, but then it turns around and it starts not working and you should quit that stuff too and go do something new. And I don't consider really any of that failure, right? Because you're discounting the progress that you've made along the way. You're discounting the learning. Um, it stops you from being a sampler because I mean, in the extreme, obviously, if you never quit anything, how many things could you ever start in your whole life, right? Like very few. So you have to, in order to be able to innovate in your own life, and that's the way that you're gonna really achieve like a, an outsized result in your life, gotta just try a lot of stuff. And I don't, if that stuff doesn't work out, I don't even think that's failure. I just think it's like you tried a lot of stuff so you could go learn more things about the stuff that you actually really want to stick to, right? Like, look, I tried piano. I stunk at it. Did I fail at it? I, I don't think I would call that a failure. I would call that figuring out that I wasn't good at piano and I should go try something else. And so I did. I went into gymnastics instead. There you go. I was pretty good at that. You know, I think that in some ways, this idea of like, we're going to celebrate failure, like that, the way that Google talks about it, right? We're going to celebrate failure. In some ways, I think that reinforces the idea that quitting is bad. I think it reinforces the idea that trying something and having it not work out is bad because failure has such a negative valence to it, right? It means that you, you did poorly, but I think the way that I think about it is, hey, if you figure out something that isn't working for you and you quit it, and you quit it faster than other people would have, that's a success because it means you stop doing something stupid so that you could do, go do things that were better. Um, and that sounds like success to me. So it doesn't sound to me like you've done a whole lot of failing. It sounds to me like you've done a lot of sampling. You figured out what worked and what didn't work. You've learned from all of it. And that's a, gotten you to figure out like, what are the things that I really want to do? And down the road, you may figure out that the thing you're doing now yeah, it's, you know, used to be great. Now it's not so great. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean that you failed at it. It means that you, you know, things change and you learn something new and maybe you'll go go do something else that's awesome. And I think that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, and I love the way that you framed all that. And it's very similar to the way that I frame it, where I always say that failure is just feedback. I literally have a, a picture that's framed in my other room that my team made me, which is a picture of me climbing the steps on the first obstacle of American Ninja Warrior with the big logo in the background and the Superdome. And it just, they quoted me, failure is feedback. 
right? The funny thing is what you don't see in that picture is two steps later, I fell in the water and I was done, right? So it's like the quintessential picture of me taking small steps towards success and immediately failing on the right, right. side of the photograph, right? So people right. don't see that part of the story. But one of the, the most formative lessons that I've ever learned in my life that came from my father is whenever I would fail or do something stupid or be down on myself, he'd say, what you just got was a very valuable education, which I didn't realize at the time, especially when I was younger and even in my 20s, I was like, would you just stop saying that? Like, it oh, made me so mad. But now I see that he was teaching me how to frame everything with a growth mindset and gathering in the information. So for me, and it's funny because you just basically talked about the trajectory of my daughter from she went from piano, wasn't really her thing, went to being doing dance, wasn't really her thing. Now she loves gymnastics and she's obsessed with it. So it's not just, well, you quit piano and you quit dance and you're just no, jumping one like thing to the next. Just to go do another thing. And then you found the thing that you love. You know, I think, look, here's the thing. And, and I think that this is part of the problem with this fear that we have of, you know, well, I failed. It's like, well, what's the definition of that? So, you know, one of my favorite stories is about this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, who ran, was running the 2019 marathon. And on mile eight, she experienced this really horrible pain in her leg and her fibula bone snapped. So she broke her leg. Okay. So, you know, as you can imagine, the medical tent was like, hey, Siobhan, you should stop running this marathon. But she didn't. She kept going and she ran and finished the marathon in 26 point, you know, the 26.2 miles. So first of all, look, it, as much as intellectually, you can say that was dumb. I know everybody emotionally is kind of like, oh, she's a badass. I kind of wish. Mm -hmm. I but you don't really wish you did that because if you're running that far on a broken leg, you could literally never run again. Right? Or walk like, again. Or walk again. There's there's lots and lots of marathons that you can that you can run in your life. Why are you continuing to run this one? This is the problem, right? Is that um, we don't like to walk away from things. So let's think about why did she do this? Because this is really gets into why do we all do this? And it has to do with sort of what's our definition of failure? How does our mental accounting work? Um, and the way that our mental accounting works is that when we're what we call in the losses, we do not like to close accounts in the losses. It's a really helpful way to think about things. So we would like to think about all the marathons that we can run. But when we start that marathon, we open up a mental account for that marathon. Now, how do we figure out whether we're cognitively in the losses or in the gains? Well, because we measure ourselves in comparison to the finish line. And the finish line is whatever goal we have. So in this particular case, we know what it is. It's 26.2 miles. So never mind that she ran eight miles. So... From that sense, she's in the game. She's eight miles more than she was at the when she opened the account. Um, at the moment she breaks her leg, she's 18.2 miles in the losses. So therefore she must continue to run because otherwise she's gonna close the account in the losses. Why do we know that that's the problem? Because we can all do this thought experiment. If she was running a half marathon, Zach, how long would she have run for? it? Yeah, she would have run for over half of it. She's almost there. She, yeah, so if she was doing a half marathon, she would have gone 13.1 miles. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have gone 26.2 miles. If she was running a 20-mile race, she would have stopped at 20 miles, right? It didn't have to do, there was nothing magic about the 26.2 miles, except that that was the goal. So this is how we get into trouble because the way that our mental accounting works is we judge failure by short of the goal. We do not judge ourselves by progress from the starting line. 
And that causes us to run a whole bunch of marathons with a broken leg. When actually what we should say is, hey, that was pretty good. I ran eight miles, broke my leg. I'm going to stop so I can so I can do this again in the future. But we won't do that because we have a goal, we have a destination, and we're just going to barrel headlong to that, right? And this stops us from being willing to stop things that are not working for us. And that is such a huge issue for us. Like when people are saying like, I don't want to stop my career now, it some of it is for sure, you know, all the energy and time and everything, and I'm going to have to start over. But a lot of it is, but I haven't finished yet. I had a goal, right? Uh, I wanted to be a writer on an Emmy award-winning TV show. So if I quit writing to go do something else now, then I will never be able to achieve that goal. That is failure. No, it's not. What about all the great stuff you did along the way? Of course, it's not failure. It just means like, I'm going to go switch and go do something else that I can achieve a greatness at. But it's not the way that we can process the world. And we all end up like Siobhan O'Keefe. It's funny because I'm very similarly in almost exactly this position now. So I'm actually going to hijack the next few minutes of this conversation to actually work through where I'm stuck. And then what I want to do is I want to break this down so I can help other people get stuck. And I want to walk you through the current process that I have with my students that I want you to tear it to shreds and tell me how to make it better. But I'm totally going to hijack our conversation for my own personal needs, knowing that I hope it will also help my students. Um, so the goal that I've had for, it's been about five years now, I decided in late 2017 where I was quite overweight, very out of shape. And I was winning dad bod competitions, not literally, but figuratively. And I was watching TV with my kids and I said, you know what? That looks cool. I'm going to become an American Ninja warrior. No business doing this. And I decided that for the next five years, I was going to completely change my nutrition regimen and sleeping and exercise. And it wasn't just about getting in shape. It was how do I develop grip strength? And at 40 years old, how do I learn how to do an eight foot lache from one bar to another? And I'm doing parkour with teenagers, all these things. And if we look at over the grand scheme of five years, if this were a matter of, like you said, like investing in stocks, I've just been putting money in stocks and my portfolio is just growing and growing and growing. I've gotten healthier. I've gotten stronger. Um, all of my biomarkers, when I go to my doctor, who's a, a, a holistic, uh, integrative uh, medical practitioner that's looking at the full gamut, he's like, these are the labs of a 25-year-old professional athlete. So I look at all of these benefits. However, the only thing that I continue to focus on is the lack of not achieving the goal. And the goal is that I want to be featured on the show going through the course and making it through obstacles. And I've literally, if we're talking about a marathon is 26.2 miles, I've made it about 28 or 25.7, where I, if I tripped, I'd almost touched the finish line and that I've been on the course twice with the cameras, with everything going, but I didn't do well enough that I got featured on the show. And about a month ago, I was invited by the show itself because I've done a lot of networking. And again, more of that portfolio, building amazing relationships, all these great things in my life. I was invited by the producers to come test. I wasn't invited to be on the show, but they're like, why don't you come test the obstacles with us at our warehouse? And I did. And I hurt myself. And for the last month, up until about two days ago, I couldn't lift my arm higher than this. And I'm thinking, I'm 43 years old. What am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this? I can't even grab a dish off the shelf and I can't open or I can't close my car door. But I haven't crossed the finish line. So I've been going through this debate of do I keep training? Do I keep pushing through this knowing the outcome is very, it's a very low probability that I'm going to reach the goal. 
but I have achieved so many amazing things where if this were poker, I played five years of poker and I've made millions of dollars, but I didn't win the grand championship. Yeah. How do we work through this? Yeah. So essentially this is where I love sort of two frameworks. Okay. So one of them is called kill criteria. So one of the things that we need to recognize is it's, it's, it's hardest to quit when you're 300 feet from the summit of Everest. That's when people die. Um, I appreciate that, by the way. <laughs> you're 300 feet from the summit of Everest. I am. I literally so, can see it. I'm like, there it is. The clouds parted. I'm like, is. you know, right. I'm half an hour away. Yep. That's exactly. where I am right now. So a good thing to do is basically set kill criteria, which is to say, I'm going to be pretty bad at making this decision right now. Cause you probably are right. It's like, it's so close and it's so hard and I'm going to be pretty hard, bad at that. So uh, this is best done, not just by yourself, but with someone who you feel like you value their opinion on the topic. Um, kill criteria is you, what you do is you say, how much longer am I willing to continue to try at this intensity to achieve that particular goal? So you set yourself a deadline, right? So for you, it might be, I'm willing to put another year into this, or I'm willing to put another six months into trying to do this thing. Um, and then having done that, you say, okay, let's imagine that it's, a year from now, and I, I failed to get on the show. What were the early signals that I wasn't going to be able to do that? So it could be um, you've tried this many times or your times are consistently not getting better at some point or you're getting injured or, but you figure out what those signals are. Those would be your kill criteria. And when you discover them, you say, it's not going to be my goal anymore. Now that doesn't mean, and this is, I think what's so important that people need to understand. It doesn't mean that, um, you're not trying for the goal while, while you're going, right? So you set the kill criteria. You say, if I experience this many injuries trying to get there and my times aren't improving, um, you know, if I've gone on three more times and I still can't get featured or I still can't get through the course in a way that's going to get me featured, let's say that those are your kill criteria. You also say to yourself, what do I need to do in order to get to a good version of the world? So you're still putting in the effort, but this gives you a deadline with very clear signals that you're committing to in advance that will help you to stop. So this is the equivalent of like when you're climbing Mount Everest, they have something called a turnaround time, um, which is so eight times as many people die on the way down as the way up on Everest. I don't think most people know that, but it's true because you're descending in darkness with hypoxia and, you know, you're cold. <laughs> And tired and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, uh, so they have something called a turnaround time, which is on summit day, no matter where you are in the mountain, whether you've reached the summit or not, you have to turn around. You're supposed to turn around. Not everybody does, but you're supposed to turn around at 1 PM. And that's to make sure that you're descending the mountain when it's not dark. And that saves a lot of lives because it stops people from continuing up when they're 300 feet from the summit, but it's 2 PM uh, and they're going to die if they try. Um, so that's a good example of a turnaround time. So we, so that's, that's, um, sorry, a good example of kill criteria. So you can set kill criteria for anything. You could do it for your situation. It's really good if you do that with someone who is a coach of some sort, right. Who can say, look, if you're not reaching these times or you're not, um, uh, you know, or you're getting injured in this way or whatever, like this isn't for you. Right. So that can help you to sort of understand how long should I keep at it? And, um, and uh, you know, what are the signs that I should quit? Now, I do want to say that uh, if you enjoy the pursuit and it's not taking away from other opportunities, like it's not taking away from your dad time, it's not taking away from your job and those kinds of things. So you like the pursuit itself, then your kill criteria would be, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing this forever. 
Um, but uh, it sounds like you're sort of at the point where you're like, hmm, I'm not sure, right? Like, do I like the do I like the pursuit or not of this particular goal? Sounds like you like the the actual physical exercise, which you wouldn't give up, but maybe you give up that goal. So kill criteria are a really good way to do this. The second framework that you can apply is something that I call monkeys and pedestals, um, which is to figure out what is the what's the hardest part of the problem? What's the bottleneck here? So monkeys and pedestals comes from Astro Teller over at X, which is Google's innovation hub. And it just goes like this. Uh, let's imagine that you want to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in the town square. Uh, there's two parts of that thing that you need to accomplish. One is, can I train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches? The other is, can I build the pedestal? One of those things is really easy, the pedestal. The other one is an unknown. It's the bottleneck to the act, right? So uh, monkeys and pedestals tells you that you should try to train the monkey first before you build the pedestal. Why? Well, because first of all, you don't need the pedestal if you can't train the monkey to juggle flaming torches. That's number one. So there's no point in building it if you can't actually do the hard part of the problem first. The second thing is that um, the building the pedestal actually represents false progress because you know you can build it. So if you already know you can build it, then the process of building it doesn't tell you any new information. The thing that you don't know is whether you can train the monkey to juggle those flaming torches. Um, and so you should try to tackle that unknown first because otherwise you, you'll have the illusion of progress. And this is the third insight is that once you have that illusion of progress, then it's like, I can't quit now. I already built this beautiful pedestal, even though I can't train this monkey to juggle flaming torches. So we can apply that to, to your situation, which is you can say, what are the pedestals, right? So the pedestals might be certain things having to do with like, uh, your workout schedule, like designing your workout schedule, um, doing certain parts of your workout schedule that you already know you can do, like those kinds of things. It's not That's not to say that they're not worth doing. It's that they're not going to tell you any information about solving the particular problem that you're in. Instead, what you can do is say, if I actually want to get on this TV show um, and get featured, what's the monkey? What's the thing that I really have to do? So it could be like break a certain time for example. All right. So if if that's the monkey, then everything that you do has to be, let me try to figure out as quickly as possible if that's something that's achievable for me. Um, and if it's not, then you say, okay, I'm going to go figure out a different goal. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those 
those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Oh, I love all of this. And what I want to do is I want to make sure that, first of all, I'm understanding it and I want to apply it to my situation. And then I want to I want to give you a sense of where my mind is right now with this decision to see if I'm on the right track or have okay. you kind of break it down differently. And then I kind of want to finish up with a kind of a brief breakdown of my current process with my students. So then you can also tear that apart. Okay, great. Um, I'm feeling very good about a lot of this because I think without having the exact terminology or the frameworks, I've already done a lot of the thinking that you're talking about. So where I currently am with the decision as of recording this is that I know for a fact that they're not going to be casting for people for another two years. It's not even one year. It's two years because they're bulk shooting two seasons right now as we speak. And where I left it is when I was testing those obstacles, I was more confident and more skilled than I've ever been, which is why it's so demoralizing because it wasn't a matter of, oh, I suck at this and I shouldn't be here anyway. And I got hurt and it was a sign that maybe it's time to hang it up. It was, I've spent five years and I'm exactly where I want to be and I've gotten good at this and they're inviting me to do it. And now I'm injured and I'm being kept from knowing that I could test these obstacles for weeks right in the actual set of the show. So that's the point that I'm at now as far as skill and training and relationships and whatnot. But I know for a fact that I've got two full years before they can cast me again. So the thought process is that there are so many amazing benefits I get from just the process, from training, the people I surround myself with, all the health benefits that we've already talked about. However, the area where it's really challenging is the level of intensity and the frequency with which I have to train, which causes the injury. So what I thought to myself as far as kill criteria is, and I don't know what this looks like exactly, but in general, I want to take a year off, so to speak, the very specific high intensity training and focus on other forms of exercise and skills that I've had to say no to because I've said yes to ninja training, meaning I want to get a little little bit better at slow twitch and my mobility because I spend so much time on upper body strength, really tight upper body. What if I focus on mobility and yoga and things that are more yin energy than yang energy, knowing that in a year there's no opportunity to be on the show, but then I give myself one more year. That's the kill criteria. From a year from now until the next casting of the show, I I give it everything I've got. And if I don't get on the show, Well, then I say I tried my best. I left it on the field. I've developed amazing skills, an unbelievable network of people, all this knowledge of how to achieve difficult goals and break it down. And I move on with my life. That's where I am now. So I love that. So uh, let me sort of uh, point out two things. So one thing is that uh, you just pointed out really beautifully that uh, one of the reasons why um, knowing when to quit Uh, or what you just described, which would be a pause, right? Which is quit for a period of time. is such an important skill because whenever you're doing something, you are losing the gains that would be associated with other things that you can do. So this is a problem called opportunity cost neglect, which is that there's a cost of not being able to pursue other opportunities because there's other opportunities that have gains associated with them by using your resources on one opportunity that you're pursuing. Those are resources that you cannot use to pursue other opportunities where you might have gains. So you just described that really perfectly. 
right? I've been doing this intense training, but the time that it takes and the intensity of it stops me from doing other things like yoga, uh, where I'm working on my mobility, uh, working on slow twitch, working on whatever, right? So you're saying, I'd like to go pick up those those gains that are associated with those opportunities and stop neglecting them uh, for a period of time because I think that would be really interesting for me and I'd like to go explore that stuff. So that's amazing. So this comes into this idea of uh, what we call explore exploit, which is that when we find something that we love um, and we're continuing to do it, it's called exploiting that opportunity. So um, if I am Blockbuster and I'm selling DVDs at at stores and that's working well for me, um, as long as I'm doing that, I am exploiting that opportunity. So this isn't like a bad version of the word exploit, which I know has some sort of negative valence to it, but it's just the idea that I'm exploiting things that are working for me. But what it means is that I can't explore other opportunities if that's what I'm focused on. So I can't explore streaming, right? And if we don't explore streaming, maybe we go to, out of business like Blockbuster did, right? So if you can't explore the other things that you might do, maybe you go out of business because you haven't explored this other stuff that might you might actually find out that you really enjoy, uh, that might improve your fitness in other ways. Uh, might reduce the chances that you get injured. Um, and then, uh, so so that's sort of the same idea. So don't be blockbuster, right? We don't want to just exploit something. We want to also explore other opportunities so we can find out if we like them. So that's the first thing. So I love that part of what you're talking about for the first year. Look, there's no point. I can't find out what I need to do and whether I can actually do this in the next year because the opportunity isn't available to me. So I'm actually going to use this time to go explore a bunch of stuff that I haven't done before. Love that. Then what I love that you did after that was you said a turnaround time. You said, I'm going to give it a year. If I can't do it, I'm going to quit. And the thing that's really good about that is that um, you've been pursuing this for five years, but you never actually set a kill criteria. And so what happens is that you're always so close. It's sort of like, you know what they say tomorrow is always tomorrow, right? So you're in this situation where each year you were you're like, I'm so close. I can't stop now. I'm so close. I can't stop now. I'm so close. I can't stop now. And that could literally go on for another 20 years where it's just, I'm so close. I can't stop now. So by setting a deadline and saying, okay, once I come out of this year of exploration, um, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try for that year. And I'm going to set a deadline of, of the end of the next year. That's perfect. Now, the one thing I would like you to add though, is this. I'm going to go explore a bunch of other stuff. If I discover that that brings me more joy than this goal that I was pursuing, I don't need to pursue the goal just because I'm short the goal. Because if I find out that I love yoga, if I find out that I love other forms of exercise, that I love developing my lower body strength, and I feel as healthy and fit, maybe even fitter, and maybe even more psychologically healthy, that I, that if that is the case, then you can set kill criteria around that and say, then I'm going to actually kill the other goal. And that's fine too. Yeah, I can already tell you that emotionally, I'm having a big aversion to as soon as you said that, which is going to kind of get me into another area that I know you talked about in your previous book. Everything that we've talked about right now, very rational, very analytical, version A, version B, version C, right? But there's another part of this, this scary word called intuition. Mm. And my intuition tells me 
but I was meant to achieve that goal. How dare I spend a year off and I do some running and I work on slow twitch and I get better at yoga. And then I decide that I want to quote unquote quit on this thing that my intuition is telling me I need to do. How do we bring intuition into this conversation? So here's the deal. Intuition is kind of like, you know, a clock is right twice a day, even if it's broken. (laughs) Now, the more expertise you have in something, the more likely that your intuition is going to be in a more accurate place. But the problem is that people's intuitions are very often wrong. And if we don't expose those intuitions to some sort of query, we're not actually going to discover when those intuitions are actually quite wrong. So I'll give you an example, like a a pretty obvious example of where intuition is really bad. Um, For anybody who's lived in a place that has ice on the roads, Uh, steering away from the skid is a terrible thing to do, but your intuition will tell you to do it. So there's all sorts of times when we're steering away from the skid when we should be steering toward it. Uh, But we don't actually notice that our intuition is bad um, because we don't actually allow it to have some sunlight shine on it. So I don't, I don't really have a problem with gut decision-making, particularly if the decision doesn't matter very much. What I have a problem with not allowing yourself to query that what your intuition is telling you. So this is a good example, right? Your intuition is telling you like, this is what I was meant to do. Um, I'm supposed to achieve this goal. That's fine. Um, And you're acting on it, right? You're setting up a pretty good process. But what you have to understand is that uh, often you don't know your own preferences. I mean, we can go back to range, right? With David Epstein. You don't necessarily know your own preferences until you've explored the other things. You, How can you know whether you really love yoga or not if you haven't done it? So you may go do yoga and you may discover that you have a preference for that. And that's fine. It doesn't mean that your intuition about what you're doing now was wrong. What it means is that given the information you had, you were sitting on the couch one day, you were watching a TV show, you were overweight, you thought, I'm going to do that. That became a great way for you to get in shape and get all your biomarkers like into a much better place. And isn't that all great? You're way more than eight miles past the finish line, um, past the starting point. That's amazing, right? The thing is, though, that if you if you break your leg, you don't want to keep going. And in your case, what break your leg would be is I go and I do these other things and I find out they bring me much more joy and I'm just as healthy. But I'm like happier, I'm calmer, um, things are great. Maybe you go do that and you say, you know what, this has been great, but I also love the other things. So I am going to go do that for another year. And all of that is fine. It has to do with the flexibility to say, Just because my intuition told me that something was great and so I started it doesn't mean that I have to stick to it. Doesn't mean my intuition was wrong. It doesn't mean that the initial decision was wrong. What it means is that I thought about it. I found out new information. I did a process and I discovered that, you know what? I like something else better. And that's fine. That's the thing. It's great. I I mean, I'll give you an example of, of, from, from my own life of this. Um, so it's similar to what's happened to you with this injury. So I used to travel for work a lot. Initially, I obviously traveled a lot for playing poker, but then when I stopped playing poker, I was giving lots and lots of talks to to groups and had to travel to go do those. So it's pre-pandemic. And I really thought I loved it. I thought I get so much fulfillment from, uh, doing these talks and being in front of audiences and, you know how it is. Like you're giving a talk to an audience. It's you, you see light bulbs going off and you, you really feel like you're doing good in the world. And, you know, this is what I was meant to do. This is amazing. And then the pandemic came along and 
I figured out that all my talks were going to cancel. Um, and one by one, you know, like dominoes, they fell and uh, they all canceled. And the day the last one canceled was one of the happiest days I've ever experienced. I was so happy. I just realized, oh my God, I don't have to go anywhere. Oh, I don't have to go get on a plane. I mean, obviously the world was turning to crap and I wasn't happy about that. But there was this thing I was very happy about. I don't have to get on a plane. I don't have to go be in a hotel where I don't know anybody, go into a city for 24 hours to go give an hour long talk. And as much as I love that, all of the stuff that I have to do around that is making me miserable. And I don't like being away from home. Actually, I want to be home with my husband and my dog and my kids. And I don't want to do that. And then, of course, um, all of those talks rehired me virtually. And I found out, oh, there's another way to do it. It's kind of like I thought that I could only be healthy by being a ninja, but it turns out I can also be healthy by doing yoga. Um, And I found out that, oh, I can give the talk and get what I love out of that without actually getting on a plane. And since then, I have not got, I mean, I just don't travel for work. If you're not on the Acela corridor, I'm probably going to say no. I'm not going to do it. And that's because I discovered something about my own preferences that I couldn't have discovered had the pandemic not happened. Um, And so then I quit doing something because of that, because I found out that my intuition about what made me happy was actually wrong. And that's something I think is very hard for people to sort of wrap their heads around that you don't really actually know your own preferences that well. We think we know ourselves pretty well, but we actually don't. So I would have actually done much better to say, well, let me actually explore, like, what if I don't travel for three months of the year? So this would have been pre-pandemic. I could have discovered something about myself. So post-pandemic, I worked all through the pandemic, just worked, 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 worked. There was nothing else to do. All I did was work. Um, And last year, I took a three-month sabbatical to see what it felt like. And then I was like, you know what? I actually do like working. I'm going to go back. Right? So that's kind of what you're doing. And I think that's like a really good way to sort of think about how do you actually approach these things so that you can query your intuition in a way to find out what what actually is true and what's not. Yeah, I I love that uh, you bring this up now because this, again, is going to be the perfect transition to the final area that I want to go because I had the same conversation. I don't know if uh, if you're familiar with or you uh, connected with Anthony Klotz. Uh, He was the one that had uh, coined the idea of the great resignation. And I did an extensive conversation with him about this huge perspective shift that we just collectively had as humans when the pandemic hit and how it forced us to reevaluate what we find uh, as far as work that's fulfilling, that's not fulfilling, not wanting to go back to the way things were before, all that you're talking about. Uh, And I workshopped this process of how do I debate if an opportunity is one I should take or one I shouldn't take, which is almost the same as should I quit or not quit, but it's not necessarily I already have it. In my business, every three months, every six months, every year, you're starting fresh. I've got a new thing that I could say yes or say no to. And he was talking about this pros cons list. And I challenged him and I said, I actually have a process that's not pros and cons. We go through a process that's called a cost benefit analysis because I feel there's more, there's more emotion, but also more analysis between what is this costing me and how does it benefit me versus ah the good versus the bad? So I wanted to go through both this a little bit with you to get a sense of am I on the right track, given this is your entire life's work is knowing when you should quit. So if somebody comes to me and they ask, so I've got this opportunity, should I say yes or should I say no? We do a cost benefit analysis. But the reason I wanted to bring intuition into it is that what I'm trying to do is educate their intuition. So it's kind of a combination of both. 
So it's a matter of let's talk about the cost of this potential opportunity. Let's talk about the benefits. But then when it comes to intuition, I always ask the question, do you feel nervous about this or do you feel anxious? And they're like, I don't get it. What's the difference? Is your intuition saying this is scary and I've got butterflies and this is new and I don't know if I can do it versus giant black hundred pound pit in my stomach saying run, run, run. So given that I'm not an academic, I don't have years of experience, I don't have dissertation, I've done all of this just based on the school of hard knocks. So tear apart my process of the cost-benefit analysis and this educated intuition. Where am I on the right track? What do I need to fix? Okay, so first of all, you're you're definitely on the right track on pros and cons lists, not good decision tools. Uh, so pros and cons lists are bias amplifiers. Uh, and you can think about it sort of this way, right? It's like, well, how do you weigh the pros against the cons? Like, uh, what if one pro is um, I might get some ice cream and a con is I might die. Um, those look exactly the same on the list, <laughs> one item on the list. Um, so we can think about it like, look, it it, get, it gets you into some selective attention. If you kind of want to do, uh, if you want to do the thing, if uh, you're going to sort of list out more pros, if, if you don't want to do it, you're going to list out more cons. Um, it's what I would call flat. It doesn't tell you anything about magnitude. What's the magnitude of the pros versus the magnitude of the cons. It doesn't tell you anything about probability. Uh, what are the chances that those pros occur or the cons occur, right? Everything is sort of a what if that sort of looks the same. Um, and basically what pros cons lists tend to do is uh, get you to the answer that you already wanted to get to, uh, but make you much more confident about it, which is something that we don't actually like to have happen. So I'm not, I don't, I tend to reject pros cons lists and so do scientists. Um, now well, I feel good about at least not going that direction. Yeah, Cost benefit analysis is a totally different thing because in order to understand the cost or the benefits of something, now you actually do have to think about both magnitude and probability, right? So we have to think about uh, what are the payoffs? What are what are the things that I could gain from it? And what are the chances those things occur? Um, that's going to give you an expected value. And then what are the uh, things that I could lose? What's it going to cost me? And what are the chances that that could occur? And that's going to give you an expected value. So we can think about, for example, climbing Everest, right? I'm going to achieve something that no other human has achieved. So that would be on the pro, uh, but I might die. So that's going to be on the con. That looks even, but it's not because the chance of death is actually quite small. Uh, and maybe the benefits are worthwhile. At least as you start up the mountain, there are things that could change that. That's why you should have a turnaround time and kill criteria. So that's quite good. Where you're getting into sort of this idea of like, does it make it nervous or does it make you anxious? That's, I wouldn't actually put under intuition. That I would put under sort of trying to help to inform the costs and benefits, right? So if you understand like, I have this feeling that this is like, I should run away. It's making me feel really sick to my stomach versus I'm kind of scared, but excited. Um, that tells you something about uh, your values and your preferences. And one of the things that I want to make clear that I think that people get wrong in this is that when you say something like expected value, they think that you're, it's all objective and you're doing a, a math equation. And then they'll say, but how could I know? How could I possibly know what the costs are? And the answer is you can't, you're guessing at it. Because a lot of these things are subjective and they all have to do with values. So the cost benefit analysis for you climbing Everest might look different than the cost benefit analysis for another person climbing Everest, because you may value be doing something that no other, you know, very few humans have done differently than that person does. You may value your own comfort 
more than another person does or less than another person does. I would suspect for you it would be less. Um, for you, the the cost of maybe getting frostbite and losing a digit, um, that might be something that you value more, like that you would be like, that would be so horrible compared to somebody else who say, ah, not a big deal, right? So these things all have to do with what are our own goals, what are our own values? And what you're allowing somebody to do is sort of access that part of it to put into the cost benefit analysis. So I think that that's included in there. I love the way that you frame that. And the funny thing is that what you've done without knowing it is you brought me to the reason that you're here in the first place. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote your own writing. And the one sentence that when I read, technically it's two sentences, but the one phrase that when I read it on your book, I'm like, Oh, Annie is going to be on my podcast. Oh yes, she will be on my podcast. And I want to recite it word for word because it's so perfectly in alignment with the work that I do, which is that expected value is not just about money. It can be measured in health, well-being, happiness, time, self-fulfillment, satisfaction in relationships or anything else that affects you. And it's so much more than I'm going to win the Oscar or I'm going to get the Ferrari or I'm going to make all this money. When you're doing this cost-benefit analysis, it has to be about what do I truly value more than anything? So Mm -hmm. given that this is what brought me here and it's also where we're leaving, because I want to be very respectful of your time, is there anything else that's super important for us to share that we haven't to help people better understand when should I grit or when should I quit? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the the thing that I would say is this, that the trap that you really want to avoid, so I am not anti-grit. I'm a super gritty person. Um, You know, I stuck it, you know, in situations that were very psychologically challenging and very high stakes for 18 years in poker before I decided there were other things I could do. As you know, to finish a book is a gritty exercise. It's really awful and anxiety producing and you're exposing yourself to the world and there's a, you have to do a lot of research. It's a lot of stuff. But I've also started books that I have quit because I've realized that it wasn't the right book for me. So it's the balance between the two. The great thing about grit is that it gets you to stick to things that are worthwhile, even if they're really hard. So that is a very good quality to have. The problem with grit is it gets you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile also. So we want to be able to tell the difference. So the one thing that I want to leave people with is about something called survivorship bias. Because the thing that you need to realize is that these forces that work against us walking away from things are so strong that we can incredibly nimbly come up with rationalizations for why we shouldn't quit. And it's going to be something like this right? Well, what about so-and-so? And And maybe you can fill in the so-and-so. What about so-and-so who is toiling away, trying to become famous as an actor, you know, was a waiter and such and such and such. And then at 60 years old, they hit it big. How can I quit? Because maybe I'm that person. Um, And this, like, one of the things I get told all the time is, but what about James Dyson? who made, you know, 20 million different vacuums and all of them didn't work. And he kept going at it until the bitter end and then finally made a great vacuum and we know who he is. Um, But this happens in like acting all the time, right? Well, what about this person who was at it for 25 years? And then, um, and this is something called survivorship bias, which is obviously retrospectively, there's going to be somebody who beats the odds. There's going to be that one person who at 60 finally made it. 
I don't, I do not disagree with that, but you can only know that in retrospect. The question is, is it worth it prospectively? And the way that you would figure out if it's worth it prospectively is sort of what you're doing, right? Like, look, if you're super happy being a waiter and going out on auditions, and if that was the only thing you ever did in your life and you would find fulfillment in that, more power to you. Then it's like, look, then I'm sort of free rolling, right? Like if I happen to make it big and like, you know, get on an Apple TV show or like get an Oscar or whatever, then, you know, at 60 years old, then, hey, that's great because I was super happy being a waiter and just like hanging and that was great. But if you're not happy doing that, then you have to set deadlines, right? Then you have to say, I don't want to be 60 and not have made it and look back and say, what was my life? Because that is what is going to happen to you if you fall into this trap of saying, but look at that one person who made it after 30 years of trying, right? So then you have to go into your situation and say, how long am I okay? Continuing my life as it is, let me set a deadline. Let me figure what a good version of my life looks like at that deadline. What does the bad version of it look like? What do I have to do in the meantime to try to make that good version materialize? And if it doesn't, I have to go shift to another plan. Because otherwise I will be 60 years old. I'm still going to be a waiter. I'm not going to have made it because it doesn't really happen to anybody. It happens to the one person that you can point out. And I'm going to look back on my life and say, I'm sad. I'm sad that I didn't quit and go do something else that would have made me happier. And this can very quickly get existential in talking about that the the way to really wrap this up is if it's not about the journey, if it's about the destination, that's probably not a path to fulfillment, which again, when I'm looking at my situation, at least right now, I love the process. I love the journey. I love the people, but I need to change some of the specifics so it's not so highly intense and it's something that's not leading to more injury than it is leading to progress. But right now, if I'm answering the question, do I enjoy the journey and the process? I still do, which makes it worth it to stick it out for two more years. That's but exactly if it weren't, right. if I weren't, I would say, no, I'm I'm done and I'm out. Um, yeah, because if it's about the destination, then you're just Siobhan O'Keefe. Yeah, exactly. And right? uh, but, I, I would hate for that to happen. Right. But um, if it's about the journey, it's fine. So like I say, if you're if you're saying, look, if I'm 60 and I look back on my life and I was a waiter and I hung out and I was hiking in Runyon Canyon and I was whatever, um, hey, more power to you. Then do that and maybe something great happens on the side. But if you if you put yourself into that future you and you say, if I look back on my life and that was my life, I'll be unhappy. I will be sad. Then you have to say, here's my deadline. And this is what I'm going to do. And otherwise, I'm going to go do something else. And during that time, you can pursue your dream. But you can also start to sample like you are and figure out what are the other things I like, right? Um, maybe I like teaching. Maybe, you know, maybe I should go look into being on the production side of things, maybe whatever. And you can start sampling that while you're still pursuing the other thing um, so that you can start to figure out, like, what does it look like afterwards? Well, speaking of destinations, we have far surpassed our destination of finishing this one. I thought we would, uh, but you kind of egged me on and said that as long as we can have a fun, engaging conversation, let's go. And I don't know about you, but the last 90 minutes disappeared for me. Uh, and this was just immensely valuable. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm really excited to see how this affects the students and my community and those that are listeners and those that are followers. Uh, but just to bookend the shameless self-promotion, I'm just going to put it out there. People need to buy and read your book. 
So if people either want to find your specific book or they just want to learn more about you in general, where's the best place to send them? Um, so a uh, couple of places. I mean, you can go to andyduke.com. You'll, you'll find a bunch of stuff about me there. I have a sub stack called Thinking in Bats. Um, I write on there pretty regularly. Uh, so love the community there. Um, and then I also founded, co-founded rather, um, the Alliance for Decision Education. And what we're trying to do is take the kinds of things that we're talking about that have to do with becoming better decision makers and get that into K through 12 education. You know, we teach a lot of trigonometry. We don't actually teach people how to make decisions. I think how to make decisions is the better skill. Um, and so we're trying to start as early as kindergarten, getting these, these um, skills, you know, into our education system so that our kids can grow up into adults who are better decision makers. So that's the Alliance for Decision Education. I would love it if everybody checked that out too. I love it. Uh, I love that you're uh, taking your work and uh, making sure that it has a very positive impact on people. Um, and I'm very happy in my decision to decide to reach out to you and make sure that this happened because I knew my intuition said she needs to be on this podcast. And I'm so excited that we now have this resource for my students and my community. Uh, so again, one more time, cannot thank you enough for you also making the decision to be here and give us 90 minutes of your time and your expertise. So thank you. Well, I'm happy that we made it work. It was a fun conversation. Thank you. No more injuries. <laughs> Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.